From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. We've got a two-part show today. First, David Rakoff of This American Life fame is up to discuss writing and writers ahead of his appearance at this weekend's Writing Works Conference at Columbus State Community College. Then we'll have excerpts of my talk with Ohio author Thomas Crowell from this year's Ohio Statehouse Authors and Artists Fair. His book, Murder of a Journalist, The True Story of the Death of Donald Ring Millett, covers the 1929 murder in Canton, Ohio of a crusading newspaper editor. It's a great read about a dangerous time in Ohio history, so stay tuned. David Rakoff is a humorist, essayist, author, and frequent contributor to public radio's This American Life. So welcome to Writer's Talk. Thanks for having me. You're also going to be in town at the in Columbus at the Writing Works Conference at Columbus State Community College on May 1st as their keynote speaker. Can you give us a preview of what you'd like to talk about there or what you're going to talk about? I think what I'm going to do is talk a little and then read something. One of two things, I'm not sure, but both of which touch on creativity and how hard it can be to get one's work done, all the while acknowledging that it's not mining coal, you know, and it's a great <laughs> privilege to get to do creative work, but that it, it can be difficult, you know, and, and uh, some sort of exploration of that and hopefully with some insights and laughs, it's like a, it's like a lifetime movie, Okay. you know, crying insights, laughs, Chardonnay. Right. Sharing a lot of personal pain and angst. A lot of pain, personal pain, but it ends in, you know, it ends in a, a, a shopping spree, gored to some Motown number. A lot of shoes, a lot of pashminas, and tears. So, <laughs> so that's the name of the the title of the presentation, Pashminos and Tears. <laughs> that's exactly it. Okay, good. So it'll be that. It's um, the practice of writing and how difficult it can be. It takes up a lot of my time, and it clearly takes up a lot of real estate in my work itself. So um, I, I think it's a fairly good fit. But I don't think of myself as terribly unique. I think that uh, most writers find writing pretty difficult. So let's delve into that. Let's uh, explore your pain, as it were. And uh, tell me about your process as a writer. How is it that you sit down and say, I'm going to write? Do you have to be in a particular place? you got to be in a particular mood? Or do you have to set times? What's your way of writing? Well, I don't have set times. I mean, I don't go out during the day sort of thing, you know, and I don't go to Starbucks and I don't, you know, none of that. So I stay home, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that I write, uh, but it's all potential writing time, even though, you know, to be truthful, most of it doesn't result in writing. There's a lot of email to be checked, you know, 30,000 times a day. There's, um, there's my one plant that needs to be watered and there's food to be directly from the refrigerator standing up. Um, and there are friends to be called and naps to be taken and arts and crafts to be done and stuff like that. But it is all done at home. So that, that at least keeps me open for it. I've tried going to a different place to do my writing. There was a, a, a place in New York City where you could sort of rent a little carol, like a library carol, and, and go and do it. But I couldn't get any work done there. And all I felt was this overwhelming need to take a nap. And I, I was too embarrassed to do that in front of people. There was a, an old ratty couch in the common area where there would always be some freelance writer asleep uh, on the sofa in view of everybody. And I just couldn't get over the, the lack of inhibition that it would take for me to fall asleep in front of other people. I mean, I might as well just be naked in front of other people. It seemed so... It seemed so open and vulnerable, and I couldn't do that. But I really did feel 
incredibly sleepy and I needed to go to the bathroom all the time. It just didn't work out. So I stay home and um, leave the day largely open for the potential of writing. But the most overwhelming goad for me to get my work done is actually panic and the fear of the disapproval of others or the disappointment of others. So you know, having a deadline imposed by someone else really does help me, which I think is also perhaps why I'm not um, I mean, for, for a variety of reasons, but it's one of the reasons why I'm not, say, a novelist. And I, my hat is off to those people who can sit down for the, that kind of marathon uh, of production, you know, something that cannot be done over the course of you know, a few months even, and just sit down and do it and then possibly put it away in a drawer. I, I don't know how... I don't know how to be my own taskmaster in that way. I, I do need other people. That's really interesting because you've worked in a lot of genres, humorist, essayist, author, and um, you've even adapted the screenplay and starred in the Oscar-winning film The New Tenets. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. I'm curious. I mean, this is a live-action short, so that's perhaps part of it. But uh, how did you approach adapting that screenplay and uh, did you know when you were adapting it, for example, that you were going to be acting in it? And that seems like a really different kind of uh, writing that you would have to do. Well, I, I did know that I was going to be acting in it. I, I was given the part before I was sort of given... I was given the script and the part simultaneously. Okay. So I knew that there was an advantage in being given the script to adapt, which was that it was given to me by the director who is Danish. And it was the script originally... I think it was originally written in English but by a Dane. And um, Joachim, the director, said that he wanted it expanded and he wanted a New York sensibility sort of injected throughout. And he wanted it made longer and more New York and more native in its speech, which isn't difficult if you're a native speaker and if you live in New York and have done for more than half your life, as I have done. So those challenges weren't a problem. In terms of film writing, it's a challenge in that there is no room for interiority. There are no adjectives. There is no descriptive. You know, it's dialogue, obviously. And that, that's a problem for me because page writing is the very opposite. What was nice about The New Tenants in direct this contradistinction to most scripts, I think. Most scripts, I think you have to come up with a visual solution for things. They're not so talky. Stage work is talky, but film work, generally tends to be a little more taciturn, a little more visually driven. But this is a really talky movie. And I think that was a, a real gift because I don't know that I could necessarily write a, a real movie, you know, where I'd have to come up with nonverbal, nonverbal solutions for something. I, I, I tend to be a chatterbox and my writing reflects that. So it, it, I'm not super comfortable in that medium when it's when it's fairly strict notions of craft are applied. I'm just not that. It's it's not my strong suit, I don't think. How did you avoid the temptation to give yourself all the best lines since you knew the, which character you'd be? I think I did give myself. Oh, did lines. you? <laughs> um, I gave myself a lot of good lines, but it was um, because I was already told I was. it was not my decision. From the beginning, it was the character that I got to play was the character that was given to me long before I even adapted the script. And he did have the framework of a monologue uh, at the beginning. So it's not like I suddenly wheedled my way into the director, you know, director's office and sat on his lap 
and you know played with his hair uh, and said, "I'd like to give myself a monologue." I, I really did have a monologue before I sat down to even write. So I did give myself a lot of good lines. I think some other people have very good lines as well. Well, this is these are notions not of writing but of performance. You know, when you're performing, the best way to make yourself look good is to make the people acting with you look good. It's a truism and it sounds like a bromide from the side of a herbal tea box, but it actually does really work. In that sense, I, I, you know, I, w- I was pretty happy to give up lines, especially since I had been given so many good ones on my own. So uh, you, know, you can feel pretty generous if you're feeling endowed. Okay. You got the script and you said, make it sound native, make it sound New York. But as you indicated, you're a transplant. You're actually, uh, the, and here's the big reveal, Canadian, which actually yes. you've talked about many times before. But I'm curious how you came to write the essay on Utah in state-by-state state, uh, panoramic portrait of America. How does a New Yorker... How did I get fixed up with Utah? Yeah. Well, you know, to clarify, I'm a dual citizen. I've been a citizen since 2003. Right. But I've lived in New York City since 1982, which, um, you know, is a long time at this point. Um, Utah, though, came to me because they were the gentleman putting together the book, Matt Wyland and Sean Wilsey. I think they had, by that time, run out of most states um and they had offered me to participate given me the offer of participating and i was very eager to do so because it sounded like a great thing and um but then by then they were sort of out of states and because the only state with which i have anything resembling a connection in these united states is new york and i didn't want to do new york i mean it was taken already by jonathan franzen who's a genius and you know an a-list writer and i'm in a word neither but uh you know i didn't even want to do new york anyway so since i have no real first-hand experience of other states that i could sort of bring to bear anything with that kind of uh personal depth or richness it was a repertorial assignment so I, i was perfectly happy to go to utah and it was a fascinating place you know i was somewhat hampered in the fact that i don't drive but i was driven around fairly far afield within the state and the entire nature of the book was um, more personal and less exhaustive. You know, they just wanted one good deep slice of one's own experience. That's the hope. But it was, yeah, Utah or anywhere. But I, I'm really glad I got Utah because it is a fascinating and very beautiful place. Mm-hmm. I've been there, and it's uh, there are some really beautiful mountains and things in Utah. I think I was in Salt Lake. Salt Lake City is, you know, crazy and gorgeous and interesting. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. Our guest is David Rakoff, keynote speaker at this weekend's Writing Works Conference at Columbus State Community College. For more information, visit www.cscc.com. Check it out and attend if you can. Now, back to David Rakoff. You work in the publishing industry, uh, including as a, as a publishing assistant and a publicist. What are some of the most important lessons you learned about being an author during that time? It seems like that's a great place to learn about not only the business of writing, but being an author. In many ways, it teaches you to be a little less precious about the whole thing. I'll say up front, here's the thing. I'm not convinced that the lessons I learned in publishing are distinct from the lessons anyone learns from just the general process of maturing and becoming a grown-up. Do you know what I mean? So when I say, like, one of the most important things I learned was be kind, um, I think that one learns that, that is the hope, just as one gets older 
anyway, regardless mm-hmm. of industry or what, whatever you choose to do. But uh, working in the book trade on the other side of the equation does teach you to be a little less precious about the whole thing, while at the same time also makes you more precious. Uh, what do I mean by that? It's like, so you understand the needs and realities of a marketplace, but what it also taught me was that even regardless of those needs and those realities and the exigencies of like what it takes to get published, you can really only write for yourself. If you try and write to get published, I, you know, I'm sure that it'll work, and I'm sure that many people do, and uh, it's absolutely fine. And God knows there are certainly a lot of worthy books out there that were written with just that purpose in mind. But I don't think that it'll be fun or gratifying or as rewarding as just write for yourself and then hope that it gets published. I mean, have you been reading all the stories about this gentleman who wrote this Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Tinkers? No, I haven't. It just won the Pulitzer Prize. and It was put out by a small publishing press within Bellevue Hospital, you know, in New York City, which is a large private, a large public hospital in New York, uh, which is known as sort of a mental institution. They had this small book imprint that did books uh, somehow related to medicine. And he came out of the Iowa Writers Workshop and he wrote this book and it got rejected everywhere and he just wrote it for himself. So, you know, he wrote it as well as he could by his own definitions of what would constitute good writing and waited and waited and waited, eventually got published and then this Cinderella story got the Pulitzer Prize. It doesn't always happen that way, obviously. In fact, I think it rarely happens that way. Most of the time it happens the other way. But it helped to be in publishing to sort of realize that four or five years is a long time to spend with a project that you feel cynical about or that you don't like, stuff like that. And also, having worked on the other side, I know what not to freak out about and what to be concerned about, and I think that that helps in terms of my own well-being, and I think it also helps my publisher knowing that they, the things they can tell me without me throwing a fit. And having been an assistant, but this is true of anywhere, if you've ever been an assistant or if you've ever been in a support position or if you've ever been you know, in your 20s, <laughs> I think it can only be easy to remember to treat people well. I think it's worth remembering every single day is that I, I hated being in my 20s and I really hated being an assistant and felt angry and grandiose and stifled and invisible most of the time. And those people who briefly didn't make me feel invisible, I remember them to this day, you know, and I feel very warmly towards them and I would do anything for them. And I, I, I think it seems tremendously important. And it's also tremendously important to remember I don't know, how just incredibly lucky it is to be a published writer. I don't know. I just feel grateful for that every, every day. You know, I'm incredibly lucky in the life that has been, I was going to say, given to me. I mean, I, I worked for it, obviously. Right. But, you know, there are other happy accidents of birth and location and time and whatever, but I'm glad to be here. Yeah. I'd like to follow up on the idea that you said you feel incredibly lucky because your next book is due in September 2010 is half empty, right? Yes. Um, And in this book, you defend the idea that by always assuming the worst, you'll never be disappointed. And that seems sort of at odds with what you're describing there, the feeling incredibly lucky. So is that just a writerly stance for the book or really sort of the way that you feel? Well, you know, on a personal level, I do feel very lucky. So on a personal level, it's true. In terms of the world, in terms of a kind of um, dread of the world itself, that, that's certainly not a rightly stance. That's certainly, that sort of melancholic dread is definitely a way of going through life. And it's pre-conscious. I mean, it predates any kind of moving to New York or even verbal capacity. I think it's just part of my brain chemistry. The book is a collection of essays. Most of them, I think the majority are new for the book. And 
like the previous books, it's collage, you know, and the hope is that you put these somewhat disparate but related elements together and they affect some kind of internal logic. So what Half Empty is, I hope, about is pessimism, melancholy, uh, kind of anti-romanticism, all those emotions and stances that are less pleasant to feel, just because they're less pleasant to feel doesn't mean that they're worse. They actually have their uses and they can even be beautiful. Um, so that's Half Empty, is you know, sort of a defense of all those emotions and states of being that are a little more rigorous and a little more difficult to feel, but are useful. And they've been kind of expunged from the conversation. You can't talk that way, even despite the ravages of unbridled optimism, you know, and what they did to our country the last eight to 10 years. You still kind of can't say uh, negative things without being labeled. Well, I mean, there was a time when you, you would be labeled uh, unpatriotic, but, you know, somehow counterproductive. And I would submit that, in fact, it's uh, it's the opposite. Well, here's the last question. As you said, you can take a sort of a negative stance on things coming in, and that's good because you'll never be disappointed. And it, you know, suggests the persona of the neurotic, which is the New York persona. At least that's what we yes. think. In the flyover areas, we, you know, we ascribe the, as all being neurotic. But anyway, you have an exceptionally detailed Wikipedia page. Um, Isn't it disturbing? It's horrifying to me. How often do you visit it? How often? I've only visited it once. (laughs) But you have. I visited it once because my nephew pointed it out to me. He said, "What's with your Wikipedia page?" And I knew that there was a Wikipedia page, but I didn't know what he meant. So I went to it, and it's so disturbingly long. (laughs) And I don't know. You know, I'm I'm not super savvy with machines and cyberspace and new media and everything. I found it so. It's it's as if you had gone to someone's home for brunch or something and you were going to the bathroom you took a wrong turn and you went into a room and all the walls were plastered with surveillance photos of you and this otherwise sort of normal friend who you didn't know that well was suddenly like you know surveillance photos of you and like severed chicken feet <laughs> you know and bloody messages on the wall i found it so disturbing and i don't know what it's about and it's both you know i didn't spend too long on it i just looked at it but it seemed uh, exhaustive and unanalytical. You know, mm-hmm. at some point, I think I made some sort of throwaway remark somewhere about not liking jam. I think it was for comic effect. I actually like jam, but it's a, he hates jam. And so, well, that's both, you know, missing the point and not terribly interesting. But you know what's really funny about neurotic and New York and urban, all that stuff, what you were saying? What's so that? I went to Germany for book tour for my first book. It was the only time I ever got translated into a foreign language, and, and the book didn't do well. I mean, don't ever translate me in Germany ever again. The book didn't do well, but all the reviews for my book referred to me as a Stadtneurotiker, which is city neurotic, like, you know, basically Jew. Um, it turns out that the German title for the movie Annie Hall is Der Stadtneurotiker. So it's like, ah, I see. So that's why I was sort of sent there as an emissary of this kind of urban Jewish neurotic energy. But that's a, a strange translation because if I remember correctly, she's not Jewish in the movie. Um, Annie Hall Oh, they're talking about is, him. Yeah, yeah. They, they just focus yeah, yeah, exactly. on him as opposed to Annie Hall herself. Yeah, precisely. They, 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 um, they go straight for the Woody Allen part. Right, yeah. Well, I uh, greatly appreciate you talking to me today. Thank you very much. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Tom Crowell is from Columbia and Ohio, and he's the author of Murder of a Journalist, 
the true story of the death of Donald Ring Millette. Dr. Crowell is a veterinarian and amateur social historian. He has published several articles in Timeline, History Magazine, and Man at Arms. Welcome to Writer's Talk today. My pleasure. Well, you're here today as part of a bonanza of booksellers and artists um, from Ohio, and they're right outside the walls of the studio in the uh, State House. So tell me about uh, coming down here and talking about Murder of a Journalist, or how did you first get interested in the Murder of a Journalist story? Well, actually, I uh, had been doing some freelance magazine articles, which you listed there, and I'd gotten to the point where I thought I'd like to try a book. Mm-hmm. So I spent a couple of years looking for an appropriate story, one that hadn't already been done, one that could be book length and so forth. And I was reading another article, and I had never heard of Don Millette, and his name in the story was mentioned there. I did a little research. I found that it was a very fascinating story about an interesting and courageous man, that uh, probably deserved a book, was certainly long enough, and uh, I just went from there with it. Okay. It's been a very interesting, uh, very interesting story, and it's uh, especially uh, appropriate for journalism, journalists. Okay, well tell me about why it's appropriate for journalists. That tells us about the background of this story. Yes, um, of course, Millette was a journalist, and that was what he viewed himself as being first and foremost. He was the editor of the Canton Daily News, and his murder was the result of his crusade to clean up Canton during the during Prohibition. He led an editorial crusade, the kind of which you don't see in today's world, a newspaper editorial campaign. And a lot of journalists have studied it for as a way of looking at his methods and how he succeeded and didn't succeed and so forth. And of course, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize posthumously for his work. So it's a big deal as far as journalists are concerned. Um, he is still, uh, his name is still revered at his alma mater at Indiana University. There was for a number of years after his death, um, like 30 or 40 years, a lecture series under his name for journalists. He is a member of the Ohio and Indiana Journalism Halls of Fame. So it's sad that his memory has sort of deteriorated to the point where nobody really knows who he is because uh, he is quite a remarkable journalist and he certainly paid the ultimate price for trying to do what journalists aspire to do. How did you go about doing the background? You said you did research for the book. What's the best way to research on 1926 murder? Well, you start with the newspaper. You start with microfilm, uh, microfilm readers and a good library, and you just sit down and you start reading. Uh, In this case, there were also three graduate studies done by journalism students of Millette's work in Canton, and those were a big help as well. But there is no substitute for just sitting down, going through the papers. And then, of course, you take off on your various leads that you pick up in the papers. You know, you go to census data and so forth to follow up on people and events and so on. But... The real legwork starts with reading the newspapers at the time. Mm-hmm. Tell me about what, how does Canton regard him these days? Is there uh, anything that uh, commemorates him in Canton, since this is where this all took place? Um, after his murder, Canton couldn't forget him quick enough. Um, Don Millette's murder was bad for business in Canton, as you might imagine. Canton got terrible publicity. This story was on the front page of the New York Times for, for months 
And uh, this didn't help business in Canton, and so he was not the darling of the Chamber of Commerce. Mm -hmm. they, uh, they tended to want to see him disappear quickly, and frankly, he did. Uh, there were a few uh, things named after him uh, at the time, and, and that lasted for some years afterwards. But today, you'll see occasionally a business or a place that might have the Millette name out in the area where he was killed on West Tusca. But uh, other than a plaque in the Stark County Historical Society, which is in the McKinley Memorial down in Canton, there really isn't much to commemorate Don Millette. And until recently, he hasn't really gotten a whole lot of uh, interest. Now, I'm hoping that the book will reintroduce Don Millette to a new generation of Cantonians. Mm -hmm. So did you do, as a background for you, a lot of true, true crime reading? Is that something that uh, you read a lot of before you began this story? Well, I think you can't be a good writer if you aren't a good reader first. I think the best thing to do is read. And yes, I did read a number of true crime uh, books to get a feel for how the authors arranged things, for get a feel for how they organized their books and so forth. Um, that was part of the preliminary research I did to putting together the book itself. And uh, that's just part, I guess, of, of the writer's craft. But you really have to get in there and see how other people have done it, especially when you're a first-time author like myself. Now, having gone through the editing and all of the work that's involved in getting a book finally published, I, I'm, I'm a lot easier, I'm a lot farther ahead when I do my next book than I, than I was when I did this one, because there is a definite learning curve. Okay. What is your next book? What's your? Uh... Oh, I'm working on several different true crime areas right now. None of them are at the point where I can really tell you that I have something coming, but um, true crime is, uh, is getting, uh, gaining more respect as, a, as an area of social history, and uh, it's certainly a fertile territory. Okay. Who's, who are some of the biggest names that, say, influence you on your writing? Uh, is it Truman Capote, or are there other people that are you'd rather look at? No, to tell you the truth, I will read and have read just about anything by anybody. Um, I think you have to be, a, as I said before, you have to be widely read and a good reader to be a good writer. Um, to see how the experts do it and so forth. And so I've, I've read everything, science fiction, nonfiction, uh, fiction, um, magazine articles, sports. It doesn't matter to me. I, I don't have a favorite. Um, I just like to see how people do things. So as a veterinarian, how, what was the crossover for you into writing this? I mean, veterinarian, uh, there's a specific kind of writing. Uh, you know, you're taking notes yes, and everything right. like that. How did the, do you, do you ever feel... Um, that uh, the veterinarian field has helped you as a writer or created some interesting issues for you as a writer? How does that work? No, I, they're actually two different compartments of my life, I guess. I don't really, they don't really cross over very well. Um, I don't intend to write the next Are All Creatures Great and Small. I'm not the next James Harriet. That's been done and done better than I could ever do it. I've always been interested in history, and ultimately I consider myself someone who's a storyteller of history. And that's what this book is. Tell me a little bit more about the story as it unfolded here. Take us uh, up to the big moment in the book, but don't reveal it so that uh, people are forced to buy <laughs> well, the murder of a journalist. Well, obviously, uh, you must know by the title he was murdered. So, yeah. <laughs> so that kind of gives it away. But uh, basically, uh, Don Millette uh, came to Canton. Uh, he had been a newspaper man uh, in other places. 
He'd been an editor, he'd had his own paper. Um, most of his brothers were in the newspaper business as well, and his father had been in the newspaper business. And Don had not been real successful and considered himself to be a bit of a failure. He got the opportunity to come to Canton. He was hired by James Cox, who owned the Canton Daily News, who you might recall was one of Ohio's governors. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also ran against Harding in the 1920 presidential election. But he lost, and he went back to his newspaper empire, of which he owned several properties. He hired Millette to come into Canton to take over the Canton Daily News, which was the number two newspaper in a two-newspaper town, not the most desirable place to be. Mm-hmm. And so Millette came in and decided that he was going to turn the Daily News around. And at the same time, he became involved in some of the shenanigans that were going on. And it was the Rolling Twenties, Prohibition. Lots of people doing lots of things they shouldn't have been doing. Lots of police forces not doing what they should have done to police. And so he began an editorial campaign to change all that. He uh, stepped on some toes. But remarkably, the people that were higher up in the crime world, they kind of laughed him off. But some of the lower bootleggers and some of the lower level police didn't laugh him off and they're the ones that formed a conspiracy to ultimately resulted in his death although initially the conspiracy wasn't meant to kill him just to beat him up and shut him up for more information about tonight's guests surf to facebook.com slash writers talk where you'll find links to works by thomas Crowell and david rakoff as well as days and times of our television broadcasts on the Ohio Channel and the Columbus Educational Access Channel. You can see David Rakoff in town this weekend, May 1st, at the Writing Works Conference at Columbus State Community College. More information is available at www.cscc.com. Join us next time when our guest will be First Lady Frances Strickland. Until then, this is Doug Dangler from The Ohio State University saying, Keep writing.